Welcome to HurricaneCenterLive.com. I'm Alex Garcia, Director of the National Tropical Weather Conference and Executive Producer of these programs. These programs are made possible by USAA, the South Pottery Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. These programs are also a team effort with Bill Reed, the former director of the National Hurricane Center, and Tim Smith, chief meteorologist of KRGV-TV. And now, here's Tim Smith. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to NTWC Live for Wednesday, April the 28th, 2021. Good to have you all with us this morning, whether you're watching us live on Facebook, on the website, on Twitter, wherever you're watching. Glad to have you along today. Well, I think it's going to be a great program again today. Well, they're all good. I think today is no exception to that. Dr. Jason Sipple is going to be with us in just a little bit to talk about uh, the hurricane modeling H warp in particular, and I think he's going to have a, a terrific presentation. As always, I want to thank our sponsors, USAA, Plylocks, and the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau uh, for all they do to make these events a possibility. We really appreciate their support of uh, the National Tropical Weather Conference every year on South Padre Island. Uh, this year it was virtual but hopefully next year we'll all be back in person on the beaches of sunny South Padre Island. Uh, let's start with a tropical update. For that, let's go over to Bill. And Bill, I'm sorry I didn't send you the memo about wearing ties today. Um, you know, somebody's got to kind of hold the class of place up a little bit, I guess. Bill Reed. Yeah, you would, you would have had this, I'm sorry, I didn't get your message comment coming <laughs> back on your right then and there. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's a windy morning here in Texas. In fact, uh, Tim is probably getting gust the tropical storm force there. It's just a response to the approach of that nice upper low out in the southwest U.S. Uh, not much going on in the uh, in the tropics. In fact, there's nothing right now that's, uh, that's uh, active, but I just thought I'd show you. This is the uh, uh, remnants. This is what became of uh, Typhoon uh, Surigay uh, that we talked about a week ago when it was moving out of the Philippine Sea after reaching uh, record intensity for the month of April down there. And uh, uh, it's still a well-defined circulation of uh, central pressures approaching 970. Excuse me. And uh, uh, it's going to spin itself down. The model forecasts uh, uh, show that the, uh, the, the system will just meander really uh, south of the Aleutians before eventually moving east, emerging with another upper level low. And... Uh, probably bringing some uh, uh, late season rain into the Southeast Alaskan uh, area uh, there. Uh, so that's pretty much it for the tropics. So uh, at this point, I'd like to, to say a few words about our sponsors. Uh, uh, USAA has been a long-term sponsor of, uh, of uh, the Tropical Weather Conference. And, uh, and again, this year, they're our leading sponsor. Uh, uh, they also are a leading sponsor of the Storm Science Network. The company has created an insurance product for renters to make the most of their space and money. They make it easy to cover the stuff that you love for as little as 33 cents a day. USA, what, what you're made of, we're made for. And I, I can attest to that personally. I rented over in Miami, and uh, USA was my insurer for a very reasonable price. Uh, also, we... Uh, I uh, want to mention uh, our, our good friends at Plylocks. Plylocks window clips are made for the ease of use to protect your windows during a hurricane. They install in seconds without nails, screws, or adhesives. They are an inexpensive, non-destructive way to protect your windows from high winds and windblown debris. Lock-in protections with Plylocks. And they're made right here in uh, southeast Texas in the Houston area. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest. I've known uh, Dr. Sippel uh, since he was an undergraduate back at uh, A&M in the early 2000s. Uh, Jason got his PhD at, at uh, Texas A&M in 2008, uh, proceeded on to do postdoctoral work with uh, NASA Goddard, uh, where he continued on the, uh, in a research role until about 2014, where he uh, uh, went to work as a contractor at the uh, uh, computing Center for, for the National Weather Service, where he uh, uh, specialized in helping out with the work on HWARF. And that was in 2014 to 2017. Since then, he's been at the Hurricane Research Division at AOML in, in uh, South Florida, where he's one of the lead scientists on uh, developing cutting-edge forecasts of hurricanes using the HWARF model. 
And today, Jason's going to tell us so where he stands on some of this work and the challenges yet ahead. So, Jason, all yours. Okay, thanks, Bill. I'm going to grab the, the presentation. All right. Should see my screen. Everybody good? We got it. Okay. I wanted to make sure I was unmuted. Let's try this again. Okay. So when Alex and, and Bill first asked me to, to give this talk, they really first asked me to, to talk about recent age four performance and, and what we could expect, uh, you know, coming into the next season. But really to understand h you got to understand its history. Uh, you got to understand how it was developed and, and, and how things have evolved over the past 10 years or so and to, to, to get a feel for what you could expect out of it and, and, you know, why it performed the way it did last year and why it might perform, you know, the way it will next year. So that's really what this talk is, is going to focus on to a large extent. Uh, I'll, I'll give a history of tropical cyclone forecast improvements, in particular in relation to data assimilation development. That's what uh, my specialty is. Uh, uh, data assimilation is the way you bring various data sorts, like the reconnaissance data, the large-scale uh, observations, satellite data, whatever data set you have into the model in a statistical sense. Uh, so from there, then I'll, I'll move to some ongoing developments. And finally, I'll close with the future direction, looking at the uh, a, a sneak peek at the latest greatest hurricane model that's being developed by NOAA, uh, the Hurricane Analysis and Forecast System, which will ultimately be H4's replacement. So the first stop into understanding uh, tropical cyclone uh, behavior and, and errors and forecasts is to look at the track forecasts. And the reason for that is because the track forecasts have been improving for decades now. This particular graph shows the position error forecast error uh, at various lead times, days one through five, from the Hurricane Center uh, from 1990 to 2020. And you can see, uh, ubiquitously, they're all decreasing, uh, more or less, year after year. In fact, the three-day average forecast location error now is about what the one-day error was in 1990. It's really been a, a really remarkable feat in the sciences. And the reason, and if, if you go back, you can see this, this kind of improvement at uh, the shorter lead times going back even decades before 1990. So it's really, uh, really been impressive. And, and these, these improvements are largely tiled, uh, tied to improvements in the large-scale forecasts. So here I have a, a graphic that shows skill. And just, you know, to get your mind around skill, it's, it's the higher the skill, the lower your error. So you want your skill to go up and your errors to go down. And in this case, I'm showing skill of the large-scale 500-millibar uh, pattern over North America from the GFS. Um, I guess this is it's, it's whatever the operational forecast is. Uh, GFS was for uh, a large part of that. But you can see the skill is continuing to go up uh, at 36 and 72 hours, more or less year after year. And that's really intimately related to the improvement in tropical cyclone tracks. So that covers the track portion, but, but what about intensity? Well, as it turns out, intensity didn't improve for a really long time. You can see this is the same as the first graphic I showed for uh, the track forecast, but these are intensity errors. You can see here uh, the 24-hour intensity errors are basically steady at around 10 knots uh, through about 2010. And then suddenly, around 2010, you can see a big drop-off in the errors, intensity errors. This is when things really began to improve. Well, why is that? Uh, well, starting around 2010 is when the onset of the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Project began. It's called HBIT. It's in the biggest goal of HBIT has been to improve hurricane intensity forecast. So that's been going on for about a decade now. And one of the significant uh, goals of HBIT has been, has, has been to develop and improve the HWARF model. So here on the left, you have the performance of the HWARF. Again, this is uh, expressed in, in terms of skill relative to, to climatology. So the zero line means that you're just as good issuing a climatological forecast as you are actually following the H4 forecast. So if you're doing worse than that, that's not very good. You can see in the early years, H4, I think, went operational in 2007 or 8, 
and even through you know the early years 2011 12 13 it was it was pretty terrible actually uh, it took a while for hwork to get to be a skillful model so the early years you know we're doing if they extended 40% worse in climatology then you get to the you know, 2015 time frame and we're doing a little bit better in the short lead times but still bad in the extended and it, it really wasn't until the last couple of years when we we had some really key developments in H4 that we began to see a big bump up in the skill. So now, roughly speaking, it, the skill is around 30, 35% uh, better than climatology. So that's about a 60% improvement in skill over the past 10 years. Uh, this, this improvement has absolutely uh, led to improvements in operational forecasts. H4 is, is really the premier, now the premier intensity guidance that the Hurricane Center uses. So it's, it's been nice to see the HFIP investment um, really paying off. So the remainder of this talk is going to really focus on why HWERF has improved so much. And a big part of that is, is use of this data here that I'm showing in this graphic. This is reconnaissance data. Uh, this is just an example from Michael. This is all of the dropsons, these little symbols here, these individual symbols of the dropsons. The color-coded data is all flight-level winds from the, all the different uh, reconnaissance missions. You have the vortex data messages uh, sent out here. These are just uh, summaries of the data, basically. Uh, and you also have, this is tail Doppler radar data. So a few of the, the NOAA planes have a tail Doppler radar on them that can give you the three-dimensional wind field in the, the storm. And so this is what I have here graphically displayed as a retrieval of the wind, the wind field in Michael. And this tailed off the radar data has really been instrumental in HWARF in improving its, its skill. And, and, and the, the current skill of HWARF depends very much upon whether this kind of data is available. So taking a step back, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the history of using tropical cyclone observations. And the, the first stop that's necessary is really on the dropson data. And the reason for this is because dropsons have been used the longest uh, out of all the reconnaissance data going into the operational models. So starting in 1997 is when we started assimilating the dropson data into the, the global model. This, this figure on the left here shows a study that was done in, in 2010 that looked at the impact of the data, the dropson data globally. So they used the GFS and they did it runs with and without that dropson data in. And the black line gives you the global average percent improvement as a result of assimilating that data. So the zero line means you're, you're no better than, than using it, than not using it. Positive means you're doing better. So you can see for that study, they found that the drops on data improved the track forecast for global TCs around 10% in the first 72 hours, and it trailed off a bit towards day five. This has been a, a common finding. There have been uh, several dozen studies that have looked at the impact on, on tracks of, of drops on data, and some are better, some are worse. Uh, but it averages out to around 10%. In fact, I'm uh, the PI on a, a current study using the basin scale H4, talk about in a little bit, uh, where the drops on data has about a 5% impact, 5% uh, improvement on the tracks. So, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's more or less, you know, averages out to, to 10%. So this is still true today. We see that the drops on are still improving the tracks today. So that's kind of using point measurements that are that can be taken over a large area, but what about really the inner core data, the, the data that focuses on the, the eye wall and the surrounding rain bands of the tropical cyclone? It became apparent in 2008, and I think Bill was down in Houston at the time, uh, that, that using data in, in a landfall and tropical cyclone, this was Umberto, it rapidly, uh, in the morning it was nothing, maybe a little swirl, became a depression, by the evening, it was making landfall on the upper Texas coast, just northeast of Houston as a, a mid-category one hurricane. Caught everybody by surprise. And so this was a big focus of, of research at Texas A&M where I went to, to, to school. And it, it became apparent that using Doppler velocity data from, these coastal net, from this coastal network, from Corpus, Houston, and Lake Charles, when we assimilated that Doppler velocity data into an experimental uh, data simulation system that we were using at the time, it tremendously improved the forecasts. I'll show you that in just a second, but here are just the observations on the left. This is Doppler reflectivity, uh, this is uh, the next round reflectivity uh, versus the analysis in that experimental system. And you can see the analysis 
looks quite a bit like the observations in both before landfall and after landfall. It looks like we did a pretty good job at, at capturing the structure of the system just in the analysis. And I can tell you, if your analysis is good, that is the first key step in producing a good forecast. And here you can see the impacts. So on the top, we have, this is the, the intensity evolution in Alberto. In, in red, you can see it rapidly intensified up to 40 meters per second, about 80, 85, I think that's 80, 85 knots, I guess 80 knots or so. And then it rapidly weakened after landfall. You can see these, these gray and black lines are when you don't assimilate any of that Doppler data. And you can see that all the forecasts stunk. They were terrible. And that was what the operational forecasts were at the time. Nobody, nobody had a clue that this was going to happen. However, you can see down at the bottom panel, when you assimilate that Doppler velocity data, all your forecasts, the met, you can see they follow, they're not perfect, but they do give a good representation of the, the rapid intensification of the storm. So this is our first clue that, wow, you know, using this, this Doppler velocity data can potentially have a really big impact on the intensity forecast. So that, that single study led to a, a really a, a decade or more long investment into you know, how we could use the, the Doppler velocity from various resources to improve forecasts. And one of the big ones uh, was from the NOAA aircraft. Like I said, they have a Doppler radar on uh, the NOAA aircraft. So this uh, same uh, system, that same experimental data simulation system was used to assimilate Doppler velocity uh, from the reconnaissance missions in a, a fairly large sample of uh, tropical cyclones uh, that occurred over a, uh, roughly a five-year period. And you can see here is, is the error, again, days one through five, the error, the forecast error. These are operational forecasts in the kind of thin gray and black lines versus that experimental system, the thick black line that added the tail Doppler radar data. And you can see the radar, the radar data has a really, really big impact on the error. Now, we'll say that some of this improvement is due to the fact that it was an experimental advanced data simulation system, and it was just a better model. But that's not all of it. They directly showed that the, the simulating this radar data had a, in, an, another, another incremental impact just upon the improvement in the model itself. So these results from this study then led to a dedicated effort to assimilate that tail Doppler radar operationally. And uh, got my slides. Oops, my I missed a slide here. Okay, so anyway, uh, this 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 slide gives you a history of the HWARF improvements uh, from 2010. This is basically decades worth of improvements in HWARF, and you can see in red I have this is specific to data assimilation. So in red I have when various data specific to reconnaissance was added. Uh, these red, the red text. So if when the green box, oh, so when the box goes from green to red is when that was added. So you can see that that P3 Doppler velocity was added in 2013, as well as some drops on data. Uh, in dark black bold, you see various improvements to the data assimilation system. So this warm start HWARF ensemble, fully cycled DA, you don't have to understand what, what all that means, but those are those are big deal, big big ticket items, big ticket improvements in H in H four. So there have been you know a handful of them. So by 2018, we were getting all the reconnaissance data in, and roughly 2018 to 2019 timeframe, we had a data assimilation system that was uh, really getting to be almost state of the art. It was finally getting to the point where that that experimental data assimilation system back in 2008 to 2010, it was getting those good results. We finally got H4 to that point by roughly 2018, 2019 or so. And then by 2020 is when we finally started assimilating the Doppler velocity data to H4. So current observations used in H4, well, we have conventional data, such as radio sons, drop sons, aircraft, ships, buoys, surface observations, scatterometer, et cetera. Uh, importantly, now we also have that 88D Doppler velocity, which I showed to be very important. Uh, the big ticket, though, this red, I have this in red because HWARF is the only model in the entire world that assimilates all of the reconnaissance data coming from the planes. The dropsons, the TDR, SFMR, flight level, everything. Uh, some other model, GFS, and I think the ECMWF, some of the other models, they assimilate some of the data, but not all of it. Um, 
so that you know that that has a big impact on H4. And also, we're assimilating atmospheric motion vectors that come from satellites, as well as as well as clear sky satellite radiance observations. So, what does how does the, the recon data in particular? Because I've been I've been harping on it now for a few minutes. How does that impact H4? So this graphic here shows an assessment we did uh, for a, a tw the 2019 version of H4. The, the, the assessment was actually done in the fall of 2018, but it was a developmental uh, 2019 version of H4. And here are the errors you can see on this graph on the right with and without the recon. You can see when you have the recon at most verification times, especially before, you know, add and before 72 hours, your intensity forecast is doing better than when you don't have it. And it winds up being about a 10 to 15% improvement. Uh, this, this sample was taken, we, we looked at the major storms from 2016 to, to 2018. So this was Matthew, Irma, Maria, uh, Florence, Michael, and Harvey, I think. And why am I saying that? Because major hurricanes tend to have, uh, they, they tend to be the hardest to get with data assimilation. The, the really tight gradients in the inner core, the strong winds, they, you have to do really well with your model physics in order to, to, to get that right. And you have, to, you have to, to sample it well, and you have, your data simulation system has to represent the storm well. And the only way to do that is to invest a lot into CPU. And so it's, it's taken a while to get us to that point. But if you're doing well with major hurricanes, that's kind of like the gold standard. Uh, doing doing with, well with tropical storms is, is a lot easier than with major hurricanes. So it's really encouraging to see that with these major hurricanes that we we're, we're improving uh, so much of the forecast, the intensity forecast with the reconnaissance data. Uh, so now you know H four is now that we know we've we've proven that the reconnaissance data can actually have such a positive impact on the forecast. Interestingly enough, HWARF is now being used to change how the reconnaissance is gathered. An example of this is with the, the G4. Uh, prior to 2018, the G4 would typically sample the large-scale environment. So here on the top, you have typical locations of G4 drop zones. You can see away from the storm, the storm would be at the red dot, and you would have these, these, these white circles would be where you'd have environmental sampling. Uh, before... 2018, you had a lot more of these white circles away from the storm, and you only had one ring around the storm. This outer ring would be around the storm. The inner ring was never done before 2018. But there was some, some evidence to show that if you brought this, these dropsons, some of these dropsons from the environment closer to the center of the storm, you do two things. One, it tends to impact the track more if you're closer to the storm, but also it has a really big impact on the intensity forecast. And we've definitely shown that with H4, that the, the more you sample here in the vortex, the better your intensity forecast is. We've also know that the G4 has a Doppler radar on it. So getting that Doppler velocity data in is, is crucial. So when we started assimilating that data from the G4 into H4, it was even more motivation to, to bring this, the, the G4 flight pattern in to this inner circumnavigation. And you can see down the bottom, these are wind retrievals from the G4 TDR. This is from the same mission here. These retrievals are from this inner, inner circumnav from the G4. You can see that's a, that's a big area of data going into the model that previous to, to 2018 wasn't happening. Another thing that we started doing in 2018, like actually I, it started experimentally in 2017, implemented in 2018 was endpoint drop signs for the C-130 missions. So here on the top, I have a graphic that shows what a typical alpha pattern for the C-130 might look like. And previously, uh, prior to 2018, most of the missions just had, uh, at the center of the storm, you had the star, you'd have drop signs in the center, maybe at the radius of maximum winds, uh, just a bit out from the center, but definitely nothing at the turns uh, where these black dots are. So I worked with the Hurricane Center and suggested, you know, they, sh they should try dropping drop sounds out here because we know that the reconnaissance data has such a big impact. And so they did. And we did data denial experiments on, on these tests. And that's on the bottom here, you can see the impact of adding these, these drop sounds at these locations in the model on the intensity forecast. So positive is better, negative is worse. And you can see we're roughly, you know, in the five to maybe 10% on average improvement due to, to adding drop sounds uh, at these locations. So based on this, they, this, this work that was done in H4 
this practice was implemented operationally in 2018, and now all the C-130 missions have drop stops. So we've really substantially uh, increased our drop stop usage uh, due to really experimentation with H4, showing what a big impact it has. So we've, you know, I showed you the, the, the impact of reconnaissance evaluated in the, the 2019 version of H4, and here, I have an assessment of how HWORF does, this is the 2020 version, uh, regionally. And this is really a, an interesting look. So I, I was really interested in knowing, you know, aside from, okay, I have the direct assessment of the, the impact of reconnaissance, but you know, overall data in general, how does the model respond or how do multiple models respond to having data versus not having data for this, the, the intensity forecast? So I looked at the, I wanted to look at the skill in two different regions, near CONUS, which is this kind of dark gray region, uh, roughly within 700, 800 kilometers of land, uh, really well covered by the, the P3 and other reconnaissance. So the, the, the various colored circles here on the left show you where we most often fly the P3. Uh, we can fly outside those regions, but that's, you know, certainly those areas are capable of having very good sampling for recon missions. But also equally as important as reconnaissance is really near CONUS in the Gulf of Mexico and, you know, closer to the U.S. in these gray regions, uh, we have, they're, they're close enough to be directly impacted by the U.S. Uh, data network. We have, you know, hundreds of weather balloons sent each day. And when there's a major U.S. threat, they're released four, four times a day, not just twice a day. We have planes that are flying all over the place, uh, over the U.S., and those planes transmit data that are assimilated into the operational models. There's just all kinds of data. In HWARF, we have the, the, the 88D network. So all this data is getting into the model. So, you know, aside from the reconnaissance, just, you know, how does all this data impact the intensity forecast? So I have near, and I have out in the main development region, MDR, where, yeah, we do get some reconnaissance missions out in the Western MDR, but generally speaking, the MDR is pretty data sparse. You know, most of the time we only have satellite data. Get atmospheric motion vectors and radiances and I guess ASAP uh, uh, surface winds and and that's if you're if you're lucky. Um, there's cycles when those those data sources just don't don't get into the models uh, because there's not a that, that satellite isn't there at that time. So how does this impact the forecast? So on the on the top, I have the intensity skill relative to climatology for H4 and black coamps TC, another really good intensity model does not have its own data assimilation. It just relies on the GFS, and then it has a, a, a scheme to initialize the vortex, but no, no data assimilation. And then IVCM, which is a consensus product, which in general, um, IVCN is, is, if you average over the season for the whole sample, IVCN is better than the individual input. So the consensus is kind of what the hurricane center tends to go towards, unless they have a good reason not to. So I have the intensity skill for these two regions in the bottom, the MDR and the top near CONUS. And the first thing that you notice right away is that the lines, all three of these lines near CONUS are way, way north of where the lines are in the MDR, meaning the skill, the intensity skill is much, much higher as you get towards CONUS than out in the MDR. And I can attest to, I have seen many, many major busts on the intensity forecast out in the MDR where H wharf would show a category five and it's a, you know, a, a weak tropical storm. And, you know, H wharf is notorious for that. And it, it's a reflection of the fact that, you know, there's physics biases, but we just don't have data. So these, the skill near CONUS for all three, all three, IVCN, COAMPS and H wharf is much higher. What's interesting though, is if you compare just between the three lines themselves. So out in the NDR, COAMPS and H wharf, they trade, they go back and forth. HWARP's a little better in the shorter lead times. Coamps is better at the longer lead times. But on average, they, they wind up being about the same, both worse than the consensus, as on average things are. Uh, consensus is kind of doing what you'd expect to do. But as you get into CONUS, near CONUS, wow, well, this really changes. Now, uh, asterisk here, I, I evaluated this sample only over water. Uh, one of the things about HWARP is it, it doesn't do as well with track in and so I wanted to filter that out because it, if you have a bad track forecast near land, 
it has a huge source of error. So I, w I was really interested in, okay, how are the models performing specifically over the most interesting aspects of the forecast, which is over water? And so that kind of gets that land impact out of the way. And you can see, lo and behold, wow, H4 bumps up above the other two uh, in the water over water portion of the forecast near CONUS. And I can say that I am 100% confident that is due to all the extra data going into H4F that is not going into, for example, COAMPs. The skill is way higher on H4F than COAMPs. And COAMPs, since COAMPs and other models are, constitu are constituents of IVCN, they actually, in some sense, kind of drag IVCN down uh, for the overwater portion of the forecast. So H4F kind of stands out as doing better th than the consensus just because of all this extra data that's going in. So that takes us to you know, some, I want to give some specific examples where you can see that, that H4 kind of did better. And this is really focusing on 2020. So I have a few storms here. Uh, in the lower left, you can see the date and the cycle. Uh, the, I grabbed these graphics just from the EMC webpage. So you can, they're not all consistent. They're mostly consistent. But in the black line, you have what was the, the operational working best track. In purple, you have the H4 forecast. You can see H4 struggles with track more than the GFS does, for example. Red is the operational forecast. Uh, orange is coamps. So this was one of the earlier cycles from Hannah. Uh, something, a storm that, that rapidly intensified to a hurricane off the Texas coast, another one of these Texas rapid intensifiers. You can see really starting out from the early tropical storm stage, we were getting the TDR data in, and, and H4 was advertising a threat for a hurricane. It wasn't quite there in the, in the first uh, cycle that I show here, but it quickly made it there. So black here, this black dot shows the landfall intensity. Uh, this, the, this particular graphic, they didn't have the, the full working best track on it, so I had to, to fill in what the landfall intensity was. But you can see, this is a really good forecast uh, from h it, it gives roughly the right landfall intensity uh, within you know, six, 12 hours or so of the, the right time. So this is really encouraging to see this performance here. This is even better. Uh, uh, really a, a very good, uh, very good forecast of the intensity. And it just kept it up really the entire time. Um, so that was a kind of a first clue. Wow, you know, we, we're really doing well here. You move on to Laura, and in some sense, this is even better. It's, it's really, really hard to get forecasts of major hurricanes, right? You know, category four, you know, Laura was almost a category five. And it's worth struggled as it was out over the MDR because uh, Laura started here you know, east of Puerto Rico and some of the initial H4 forecasts were pretty terrible. The track forecasts were into South Florida as a major hurricane, which obviously didn't happen. But as we got more and more data into it and it got closer to the network, the track forecast improved a lot. And lo and behold, as, as we got over Dominica, look at this forecast. This is still a moderate tropical storm and it has the, the landfall intensity, you know, within five knots uh, for, you know, near category five. I mean, that's really spectacular. Not all the forecasts were this good. Uh, eventually, COEMS TC caught on. And, you know, this is another good, the, the timing's a bit off, uh, but the, the intensity is right as it was south of Cuba. Uh, some of the later forecasts were a little bit weaker. They were borderline category three or category four. But I'll tell you, you know, if, if you're, if you're, NWP is, is sitting at a, you know, roughly a category four and a week four and it comes in at a strong four, you're not doing too bad. That's, a, that, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty good uh, compared to where we've been in the past 10 years. So you can see uh, you know, it just continued to perform well through Laura. Sally was a struggle. So this is kind of a, a really big flashing red of, of, okay, H4 gets the intensity evolution, but the, the track really stunk with Sally. And so, the, the timing of the intensification was off and the track forecast was off. So here you have, okay, it, it made landfall as a mid two and it shows a mid two making landfall, but at the wrong time, at the wrong location, it brings it into new Orleans. So that's, that's something where we struggle with and, and, and needs to be continued, can you continually, continually developed. Uh, this forecast, uh, some of the later ones were came in too strong. I can say this particular cycle, uh, I'm, I, I think maybe there's a, a data issue in this cycle. It was, it was rapidly intensifying too fast. And again, the track was way off. Um, but it, it gave the right idea that something would be rapidly intensifying as it approached the coast. It just the timing was off. Uh, later, 
forecasts were a little bit better. You can see H4F and HMON were kind of both trading places on how much the intensification would be. Once lagged behind, it was always too weak for Sally until uh, just really in the last day or so before landfall. Um, here's the so here's the landfall here. Uh, as as we got closer to landfall, the forecast got a lot better. Uh, Delta was, I would say, generally fairly successful for H4. It, it generally showed a, a category two making landfall in Louisiana, even from some of the initial forecasts way down here in the Caribbean. There is some problems in this, you know, kind of around 48 hours or so because it did not appropriately make landfall in the forecast over the Yucatan. So that caused some intensity biases. But as we got near the Yucatan, you can see this is a really good intensity forecast evolution uh, very closely uh, mirrors what actually happens in the working best track. And as we moved off the Yucatan, um, this is an excellent intensity forecast. This just wasn't possible five, 10 years ago. So continue good performance throughout. Um, data is another good example. The, the, the initial forecasts were, were bad. Uh, the track was bad. Uh, didn't, you know, it didn't, didn't make landfall in the Yucatan as it was supposed to. So that kind of screwed things up. But as we move closer to the Yucatan, again, another example, as we got more and more of those TDR emissions in, here, look at this. Just before the Yucatan landfall, look at that intensity evolution. The purple line is very close to the black. So this is, this is something that you just wouldn't have seen a couple of years ago. And, and really, so here, as it moved off, it was advertising a week three. What came in was really a strong two. That's a pretty good forecast. So... That gives you an idea of where we were last year. Uh, I focused on Gulf storms because that's where H4 really does the best. So, you know, I, I talked about some problems and I talked about some successes. So, you know, what are the ongoing developments? Oh, one of the things that, that we're looking at closely in NOAA is drop time. So NOAA has acquired another high altitude jet to replace the G4. Uh, the G4 is becoming less and less reliable as it gets older. And so we have a G550 coming online in 2023, I believe. And it's going to have all the capabilities of the G4 plus some. It can fly higher, so we can, we can get, it's more versatile near the storm. We can fly over the top, of, closer into the storm, over, over the deep convection a little easier. Uh, so that's really important for gathering data. It has a longer capacity. We can fly longer if we need to. And it's going to have other instruments on it too that potentially at some point in the future could become operational. We're also looking at the impacts. We're doing a major cost-benefit assessment of drop zones currently underway using the basin scale version of HWARF. Now, I mentioned HWARF has improved a bit since uh, the, the, the results I showed you with the recon impact assessment. And this is really showing. So we're finding on the right here, this is the, the intensity impact in that assessment just from drop zones. So all drop zones, intensity error, all drop zones in green, Road drops on in red, and you can see this, this green line is solidly below the red line with some statistically significant results at a few of these uh, days at these verification times, which getting statistical significance with intensity is really, really hard. It doesn't happen too often. So this is kind of a big deal. Uh, so this is just all versus no. The entire project, I'm, I'm a, a PI on this project, is evaluating, you know, which sound like at or, you know, away from the vortex in the environment, near the vortex inner core, you know, where should we be dropping? But it turns out that removing drops on anywhere has negative consequences one way or the other. So really we should be dropping drops on as much as possible everywhere we can. So it's an interesting result, but it's, it's, it, it, I think it gives Noah some guidance on where we should take things in the future because drop sounds aren't free. They're eight, $850 a pop. So it's good to know that they're having this kind of an impact. Uh, another big deal is the GFS-16 upgrade. So GFS-16 is, is going to make quite a bit better use of the reconnaissance data than G GFS-15 did. It was upgraded in March, and we added a bit more drops on data into the model, and additionally, the flight level HD op data. And this is the impact on the GFS track shown here, expressed in terms of percent improvement. So if you're positive, that means that GFS 16 is better than GFS 15. Negative would be worse. You can see all of these uh, verification times through day seven are all better than GFS 15. Uh, this is just as a result of 
I'm sorry. This is this is these are both uh, GFS 16 with and without the with and without the HDI uh, uh, the additional uh, Gopson data. You can see that that data improves on average the tropical cyclone tracks over the North Atlantic, the entire basin, whether or not the data was in a storm or not, over all cycles, all tropical cyclones in the North Atlantic, uh, by about 5%. Now, if you just narrow the focus down to the cycles where the data was in, the improvement's a lot better. So we're, we're, we're going in the right direction here, right? We're adding this data into GFS now, and when we're, when we're dropping the extra, when we're assimilating these extra dropsons and assimilating that, that flight level data, we get a big boost in improvement. So I think you're going to see, uh, going into 2021, that GFS, the track forecasts are going to be quite a bit better. I don't know if they're going to be, you know, as good as ECMWF. You know, that was always, it's always been the big comparison, but they're certainly going to be better, maybe as good as ECMWF. We'll see. Uh, and that's going to have an impact on H-Warp as well. GFS track impacts H-Warp track. And you can see that here. Uh, this is an assessment of the 2021 version of H-Warp compared to uh, the 2020 version, specifically the track. So again, this is percent improvement. And where you're positive, 20, H-221 is better, or you're negative, it's worse. Across the board, H-221 is going to have better, appears to have better track forecasts, roughly on average about 5%. Uh, then H220. Uh, we also, I expect near CONUS to have better intensity forecast because we've improved the use of the 88D data in H221 compared to H220. So that it didn't show up in the overall sample, but specifically near CONUS, where we're most interested in having good forecasts, I would expect pretty darn good performance out of H4 this coming year. So that's H4. That's where we are with H4. But what about the, the, the next implementation? What, what's, where are we heading in the future? And we've got some really exciting news coming from NOAA. We have the hurricane analysis and forecast system. So this is just one screen grab from an active period of, uh, of the 2020 season from HAVS. These are just kind of test runs of the HAVS system. And in, in 2020, HAVS was just cold started off the GFS every cycle. There is no data simulation. This cold starts off the GFS, but the forecasts were pretty good. We're developing and test running the data simulation system in HABs right now and, and getting decent results. Uh, one of the big improvements of HABs over HWARF is shown here. So HWARF runs individually for each storm. So for Laura and Marco, for example, there is a different instance of HWARF running for each storm. The storms couldn't interact as they naturally should. And, you know, here we have... 17, 19, uh, 20, 21L, all these storms have impacts on one another. But H-Warp, in H-Warp, that doesn't happen because they run individually. But in halves, that does happen. And that should have a generally positive impact on the ability of halves to, to perform better than H-Warp. Uh, there's additional benefits in halves. Uh, one being because of the way it's formulated, because of the way of the domain is set up, it has a more flexible, capable data assimilation system than really would ever be possible in H4. In particular, we're going to make much, much better use of satellite data. This is really important because reconnaissance is only available a small percentage of the time near CONUS. As you get out over the Atlantic, you saw the H4 forecasts aren't as good. We don't make very good use of satellite data in H4, the little data that we do have. And so that's a big area ripe for development and, and halves. That's going to be a major focus. So we're going to have a huge effort going on there with the satellite data. And again, like I said, realistic storm interaction that's not possible in H4. Result, we should have better initialization of the storm in the environment and improved track and intensity forecasts. So in conclusion, uh, the NOAA TC prediction is really undergoing dramatic advancements led by improvements in, in the global models and H4. We're using more and more of the available data in data simulation. And we have long-term plans to address you know, some of the weaknesses I've, I've talked about to allow for even greater data usage. And finally, all of the above factors really should contribute to better forecasts and from intensity in particular. Well, that's all I have. That's great stuff, Jason. Thank you. It's encouraging and fascinating to see all the work that you're doing and encouraging to see those improvements. 5% can make a big difference, 10% even bigger as we continue to go forward. We've got a bunch of questions coming in online. We'll get to those in just a second. I know Bill's got a bunch of them as well. Before we do that, though, uh, we do want to uh, thank our sponsors who are part of this once again questions in just a second. One of them, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. You know, from the beach and water lovers to the adventure seekers and kids of all ages, the city of South Padre Island 
says past and present visitors know that SPI is fun and perfect. The island encourages people to plan their escape and come visit. South Padre Island is so ready for you. SOPadre.com. SOPadre.com. And also Black Magic Design. Black Magic Design's ATEM Mini line of live production switchers makes it easy to create professional broadcast quality programs and multi-camera productions and stream them live. Simply connect the ATEM Mini to your video sources and go live with up to eight sources. The ATEM Mini line works with any streaming software in the ATEM Mini Pro and Extreme can uh, can stream direct to social media. For more information, visit blackmagicdesign.com. Uh, all of our sponsors help make this a program a possibility. Those are two of the big ones. Um, yeah, usually we're on South Pottery Island. I have uh, space there where we spend a lot of time, and it's a great place to be. Okay, Jason, let's start with some of the questions coming in online. Let's start with this from Marcel. Um, he says, what about the interaction with land? Any ideas how to improve? Because you talked about once it interacts with land. Yeah. yeah, so what I did not show was that H-Word has known physics issues over land. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead and sh- stop sharing your screen so we can see you. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. There we go. Okay. So, yeah, so H-Word has known physics issues over land. For, you know, the last 10, 15 years, it, it's really been developed with a focus over water. And we've really begun to see over the past few years that the track, as as it gets near land, there's major track problems. And and we have some the University of Utah has done some work that's shown that there's some some planetary boundary layer uh, physics issues uh, that need to be fixed, and we're also not assimilating a tremendous amount of METAR and mesonet data. And I am leading a study that's looking specifically at adding the METAR and mesonet data in, into HWARF, and it looked at uh, about, about 150 cycles, and it improves the track forecast by about 10%. So. Right there, bang, right away, there's, a, there's something we can do to improve the near conus forecast. That being said, I'm not sure in H4 what is going to happen with this because there's not going to be a model upgrade. Uh, we've already made the two, 2021 H4. There's not any more upgrades coming into the summer. Next year, I'm not sure if there's going to be a model upgrade because of work on the INSEP supercomputer. And then we get to 2023, and that's the first year of halves. So this work that I'm doing in H-Warp, it will be put into half, but I am not sure that if there's going to be another upgrade to H-Warp or not. So one way or another, we're going to get better near land forecasts, but it may not be in H-Warp. So we'll see. Great. Good question from Marcel. Thank you for that. Bill, jump in. I've got some more over here, but let me let, let you jump in and ask a few and then come back over here for some more. Great. Uh, uh, fascinating talk. Uh, uh, I guess one of the uh, uh, questions that come to mind is that the, the the reconnaissance data as it stands now there's relatively there's just the the two aircraft the p3 and the uh, g4 or its or successor they'll have the the doppler uh, wind type data that uh, seems to be leading the improvements are there any thoughts on uh, on uh, what kind of proxy data from satellite might be able to serve that purpose yeah so there's not any there is nothing from satellite that gives the same data that, that we get from the intercore winds at, as of now, maybe 50 years from now. Yeah. That being said, there is work that has come out of um, the Penn State group, and that's the same group that produced I, my advisor back when I was in grad school who we were working with to do all these impact assessments of the Doppler velocity data. They've used satellite radiance data, and they have in, innovative ways of using satellite data radi- uh, satellite radiance data from the GOES satellites, and they've had it has had really really big uh, impacts on intensity, uh, the analysis and uh, the intensity forecasts in their experimental system. So it is likely going to be that even though we don't have the same form reconnaissance that we do have satellites. There are ways to milk the satellite data to get improvements um, that we just haven't used so far. And are you all having problems hearing me? They're mowing the lawn. No, all good? good? Okay, good. Fantastic. So Google good, Google. but I'm old and deaf, so who knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you didn't specifically mention rapid intensification, but the, uh, and I chatted with you off and on during the season on what I thought were some 
uh, pretty good hints at RI from the the HWARF model. Uh, what's your thoughts on the on the uh, ongoing challenge of RI, which is vitally important in the Gulf? Right. So honestly, one of the challenges is the way we verify RI, which is kind of a quirky a quirky thing to talk about, but typically with the way we verified RI in the past is, well, if RI does, if your model says RI, you know, now, and it doesn't happen to 24 hours from now, that's a miss, right? But if you take kind of a bigger picture view and say, okay, if your model says it's going to RI and it RIs within kind of a bigger time, time frame, if you look at that verifying RI that way and look over the past 10 years, um, the RI from NWP has improved tremendously. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't meet the, the threshold from the hurricane center because they need to know when it's going to RI. So, um, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, the timing issues, you know, I, I think, at some point, we're going to have to move towards ensemble forecasting. This deterministic forecasting is where we just have a single run. It, it, it's subject to tremendous challenges because RI is, is, is inherently a stochastic process. It, there's so much uncertainty in timing. So if you have an ensemble forecast, I think you can have a, a much better sense of, of what the potential variability is and, 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 and get kind of an envelope view of when the RI is, is most likely to occur. And I think ultimately that's gonna help improve the operational forecast the most. Wow. Uh, so. Question on the HAS, what's the, uh, the resolution going to be? So the current resolution of HAVs in this, this big domain is three kilometers, uh, which is HWARF is running at 1.5. So we just can't possibly run a 1.5 kilometer grid over that big of an area. But, uh, and eventually, halves is going to have moving nests in the same sense that HWARF does. But the difference is that HWARF doesn't, just doesn't have that big, huge, static nest that halves does. Um, so, you know, eventually we're going to have a, a higher resolution for halves. But really, it's doing pretty good right now, even with a three kilometer, even though it's not as, as, as fine resolution as HWARF. So I think, you know, as we move towards higher resolution, you're going to see halves. I think we're going to get to like, Four years from now, has is going to be blowing H4 out of the water on the intensity and track forecast. You're going to have one product that's having really good forecast for both. Sounds great. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the, the uh, a little news blurb a month or so ago about a, a hiccup in a research project to uh, employ phased array radar on a reconnaissance aircraft. Uh, I looked into it a lot afterwards, and it really it seems like a uh, a must-do thing because uh, the, the intent is to embed one on a research P, uh, C-130, uh, which if it goes the same route as, as the, the Smurf, you'll be able to eventually migrate those on the, uh, the operational C-130s and get an extremely large increase in the amount of data available for the modeling. So I can say that NOAA is exploring uh, ways to move the phased array radar forward. Um, in fact, I had just spent Monday and Tuesday, most of the day on telecons uh, discussing the replacement to the P3. And that's coming roughly in 2030. Sounds like a long time from now. It's just like tomorrow, basically, and the way these things happen. And one of the big discussions is what are our radar needs? compared to what they are today. And yes, um, we, we're, we're gonna need, a, a, the tail Doppler radars are great. We need something better. And, and the phase array radar is, is very likely something that, you know, it, it, it's a strong contender. And no one's gonna find a way to make it happen, um, but we'll just, you know, have to see how it all falls out. Very interesting. Yeah, Tim, back to you for some more questions from the crowd. I've got one, and sometimes I like that I learn so much from our viewers as well. Um, and I'm not sure what this project is, but Casper's asking how the new Alamo project will impact the H-Wharf. I don't think we're talking about San Antonio. Alamo, those are, the, those are the floats, right? So H-Wharf does not directly assimilate ocean 
data, halves will. Um, if there's any additional data going into uh, the ocean, it's gonna it's gonna indirectly. It'll there's an ocean initial, there's an ocean DA system that's run, and the output of that is then the initial condition or the initial conditions for the H four ocean model. Um, so there will be an indirect. If, if 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 there's additional data going into the ocean, it will you know indirect. But of course, it has to be assimilated. But yeah, this is a big ocean initialization has become a really big uh, big area of study. In fact, uh, some of my colleagues just uh, did a study using an advanced version of HWORF that has a, a different ocean ocean initialization. They assimilated salinity data uh, from the Amazon outflow region and. And it turns out that the salinity of the ocean water has a huge impact on how much overturning there is in the upper ocean, which in turn impacts the heat potential, the, the, the heat mixing, which in turn impacts rapid intensification. So they're getting really big improvements in forecasts, and they've seen this with other storms as well, when they use a better ocean initialization. So this is coming at something that is more applicable to halves something that we're moving to in the next five years or so, but it, it is going to be a big deal. My, my last question, then I'll go back to Bill to, to wrap up on that end, but is, is, you know, you've seen significant improvements in the last 10 years, uh, 10 years from now, the new, the new, whatever the P3 new version will be, will be out. The G550 will be out. Uh, models continue to improve. Where do you think we can be 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a good question. So you, what, what you, what you can't do, is you can't do better than the uncertainty in the observations, right? So right now, the NHC roughly, James Franklin did a study on this, on the uncertainty of the NHC, uh, what their best track assessment is, right? And so when they don't have reconnaissance data, you know, it's like roughly a 10% uncertainty. You know, is it, Bill, what is it? Is it 10% or 10 knots? I don't know. It's pretty big. So it, it, it's 10 knots. 10 knots. Okay, so there you go. So you know, at some point, like, from a statistical standpoint, you know, we're not going to get, we have some ways to go. You know, like, the average intensity error at H-Wharf is roughly around 15 knots through, you know, watch warning period. So, you know, we can get down to probably around 10 knots. We have a ways to go. But we definitely can't go lower than the uncertainty in the, the assessment. That makes makes good sense. Makes good. Okay, Bill. Yeah, I just have one quick question, and then we'll have to wrap it up. Uh, what kind of uh, horsepower are you going to need on the computers to do uh, hurricane models on an ensemble? More than we have. <laughs> good answer. <laughs> it's it's really we're we're constantly hamstrung by computer resources. We we can do more now. I mean, we can't do as much now as is is our potential because there's just limitations to CPUs. And, and even halves in a deterministic sense probably is not going to have the CPU resources for a single run to really milk out the best intensity forecasts that we could, we could produce. So that's not even talking about ensemble. So I, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll have enough CPU resources to do limited ensembles with, the, with a really a, a configuration that, that, that has a, a very good deterministic forecast set up as well as some limited ensembles? I'm not sure, but it's not going to be in the next few years for sure. Yeah. I think the, 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 the big thing you'll see in 10 years is you'll have better structure forecasts, which will lead to better impact forecasts from the, at landfall for the wind field and from the storm surge. That is honestly, uh, to me, that's a bigger deal than getting the maximum peak intensity right is getting the structure right because the number one killer, as we all know, is storm surge. And if you can get a good structure forecast and get a good wind field forecast, you're going you're gonna to improve your surge forecast. And that is a really, really big deal. Cool. Well, Jason, it's, been, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Glad to have you with us today. Maybe we'll drag you back during the season for a, a recap on one of the storms. Should we have one of the very interesting events? Yeah, sounds good. Good. Thanks for having uh, me. Okay. Uh, 
I'm going to finish up here with another uh, plug for USAA. USAA makes insurance products for veterans, being one I can attest to that. <laughs> so when an Army family got a little surprise, they didn't panic. They got a bigger car for their soon-to-be bigger family. Then they called USAA to help find the right coverage for them, along with some much-needed savings. USA, what you're made of, what we're made for. Tim? Great job, Bill. Thank you for that. We appreciate USAA and all of our sponsors, the USAA, Plylocks, and the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Thanks also to Black Magic for all the work they do for us. We appreciate uh, their help with this as well. Um, Jason, terrific program today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being with us. Next week, uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesday, Elizabeth Gulick from USAA will be with us to talk about all things insurance. There's a lot you need to know as we head into hurricane season insurance-wise, and Elizabeth Gulick will be with us from USAA to talk about uh, the insurance industry and, and what's happening as we head into the hurricane season. So that's next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Thanks for joining us, Bill, Jason, Alex. It's been a pleasure once again today. We'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of NTWC Live. <laughs>